Well, guys, I want to welcome you to the seventh and final week of our study of the book of Jonah. We've covered a lot of territory in these seven weeks, 48 verses, uh, but 48 very packed verses. And today we're going to cover chapter four in its entirety. It's 11 verses long, and, and we're going to take a look at what happens to Jonah, what happens to the people of Nineveh. And, and what happens to God's redemptive plan? And what does all of this have to do with you and I? What I want to do, though, is I want to start by going backwards. I want to go to the verse that we ended with last week that Mitchell covered. And I've gotten a lot of questions and emails regarding this particular verse because it's a little bit confusing. And I want to make sure we cover it in detail because it really does go a long way in helping, helping us understand not only the story of Jonah, but, but the, the story of God's sovereignty, the, the doctrine of His sovereignty. So it says in verse 10, when God saw what they did, what the people of Nineveh did, that they repented, that they put on sackcloth and ashes, that they even put ashes on their animals and, and they, they mourned, they fasted. When God saw that, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that He had said He would do to them, and He did not do it. Now, where this gets kind of twisted off is we begin to make assumptions and, and um, decisions about God and what He's doing in these verses that can go a long way to taking us down a path we don't want to go as far as I'm concerned. It says they turned from their evil. And then it says that God relented, relented of the disaster. Mitchell pointed out the fact that that word sometimes gets translated repented. And so we've really got to understand what the author is trying to tell you and I as readers of this book. Now, there's two things going on here. There's two words, evil and disaster. They repented of their evil, and it says God relented of his disaster, the disaster he was going to bring on them. Now, the problem we have is that those two words are the very same word in Hebrew, evil and disaster. This word, like most Hebrew words, ra, has a multitude of meanings, and it can go all over the map. And if we're not careful, we ascribe the same meaning every time it's used, and we can't. Otherwise, we end up with some pretty twisted doctrine. So here's just a list of some of the ways it can be translated. Evil, wickedness, mischief, hurt, trouble. It can mean affliction, bringing affliction on someone. It can have to do with adversity, harm. So what we have to ask is, what is God relenting of? What's He repenting of? The question is, is the author saying that God had intended to do wickedness? Was he intending to do evil to these people? Now you could say, well, yeah, if he's going to destroy them, that's evil. Well, God does, doesn't ever do anything that's evil. He is always righteous, always good in all that he does. So we can't say that he's doing evil. Is he suggesting, is the author suggesting that God was repenting of a sin? Well, of course not. God does not sin. And so he therefore does not need to repent of sin. So we have to really ask, what does it mean that God relented? What's going on in this passage, in the, this one verse, and, and how should we interpret it, and then sh how should we apply it to God and to our own lives? This, this passage is using what theologians and writers call phenomenological language. That, that's seven syllables. That's the biggest word I'm ever going to use in my lifetime. Phenomenological language. What does that mean? Well, it has to do with what you see with your eyes, what you observe. 
And any author, any writer, any historian who is writing about events, if he's writing about, about events that he's witnessed, uses phenomenological language. It's what you observe. It's what you see. And so what happens is you see things, but you have a limited perspective. You, you only see it from one viewpoint. As limited, uh, finite human beings, we try to interpret the actions of God, but we're limited. We can't see or understand. Remember, His ways are not our ways. We can't comprehend the ways of God. And so what we do is we interpret what we see with our eyes, and we try to describe it. It's, it's much of what you see in the book of Revelation where the Apostle John is being given these incredible visions and he's trying to describe indescribable things with human language. And that's essentially what's going on here. It's like when you say, I saw the sun rising over the treetops. Well, we know scientifically that the sun doesn't rise or set. It's, it's a process of the earth revolving around the sun. But we describe it how we see it. It looks like the sun is setting, that the sun is going behind the trees. It's phenomenological. It's based on the phenomena that we see with our eyes. So what's happening here is that the author of Jonah is describing events as he sees them, as he understands them. Now, again, we've debated back and forth. Did Jonah write this or did someone write it on Jonah's behalf? I believe someone wrote it years later and it wasn't Jonah. They probably talked to Jonah. They probably heard the stories of Jonah and then they put them in writing. And they're trying to describe these events that were taking place as described most likely by Jonah. And what Jonah sees when he looks at the circumstances in Nineveh is that God changed his mind. God was going to do one thing and then he did another thing. Remember, we've said all along that Jonah expected God to bring judgment. He desired, he wanted God to bring judgment. And so when he didn't bring judgment, God changed his mind. Because he heard God say something. What did he hear, hear God say? He heard God say, give this message, proclaim this proclamation. Yet 40 days and Nineveh will be overthrown. Now we've talked a couple of weeks about the fact that that word overthrown can mean two different things. It can mean to overthrow, to destroy, or it can mean to turn back, to repent. I believe God is telling Jonah that I'm going to, within 40 days time, I'm going to turn the people of Nineveh to me. What Jonah hears is the negative side of that statement. You're going to overthrow them. You're going to destroy, destroy, destroy them. So what did God do? Well, from Jonah's perspective, God relented. God didn't destroy. He didn't bring the disaster he said he would do. And so in his mind, God changed his mind. See, Jonah and the Ninevites both expected something. What did they expect? Destruction. When they heard the message of Jonah, even the Ninevites thought, we're going to be destroyed. Otherwise, they wouldn't have repented and put on sackcloth and ashes. So they heard a negative statement and they responded because they didn't want to be destroyed. But God had always intended their salvation. See, God's not changing His mind. God is not um, going one direction and suddenly deciding, I need to go another he always intended, and his statement to Jonah was an, a, a message that communicated that I'm going to turn these people to me, and that's exactly what happened. But from Jonah's limited perspective, it looked like he changed his mind. It appeared as if God 
changed his mind about what he was going to do. But their turning had been preordained. Everything about this story from beginning to end screams the ordination of God. Every time you see that God appointed a, a, a fish, God appointed, and we'll see in, in a minute, God appointed a worm, God appointed a wind, God appointed, he, he preordained these things because he had a preordained plan for the people of Nineveh that Jonah didn't know about. And so God's not changing his mind. And one of the reasons we know that God's not changing his mind is because of what the scriptures tell us about God. We see in 1 Samuel 15, 29, He who is the glory of Israel, God, Yahweh, will not lie, nor will He change His mind. For He is not human that He should change His mind. In other words, God doesn't make mistakes. God doesn't go one direction and then go, Oh, I was wrong. I repent. I relent. I'm going to change my mind. We know from Numbers 23, 19, God is not a man, so He does not lie. He is not human, so He does not change His mind. Has he ever spoken and failed to act? Has he ever promised and not carried it through? And the answer is no. God always does what he intends to do. So this idea of changing his mind is, is something that we view. We, we put onto God human attributes. Uh, and, and we try to make God just a little bit better version of us. And that's a mistake because he's not. He's divine. He's supreme. He's transcendent. He's not like us in any way. And so we have to be very careful that God is not a man. I love what R.C. Sproul says. He says, the biblical narratives in which God appears to repent, look at that, appears to repent or change his mind are almost always narratives that deal with his threats of judgment and punishment. That's exactly what we see in Jonah. God is not talked into changing his mind. Out of his gracious heart, he, not only, he only does what he had promised to do all along. Now, don't miss that. He only does what he had promised to do all along, not punish sinners who repent and turn from their evil ways. Then he goes on and he says this, he chooses not to do what he has every right to do. But see, that choice was made long before the Ninevites repented. He knew they were going to repent. When he sent Jonah into Nineveh, he knew they were going to repent. And their repentance was not a surprise and it did not change his course of action. They did what he knew they would do because he's sovereign, because he's uh, all-knowing. He's omniscient. So this idea that God changes his mind is something that we put on God to make us feel a little bit more comfortable that maybe we can make God change His mind. But really what happens is when we pray, when we intercede, when we step into the equation, what God, God really changes is our heart and He brings us into line with Him, with His divine will. Now that's what should have happened to Jonah, but it didn't. And we'll see that as we go through chapter 4 today. So let's, let's read chapter 4 and then let's unpack it together. It says, but it displeased Jonah exceedingly. And we'll talk about what that it is in a second. And he was angry. And he prayed to the Lord and he said, O Lord, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish. For I knew that you were a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding, abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. We've looked at this verse a lot. This is the reason he ran in the first place, because he knew these things to be true of God. And his greatest fear was that God would relent or spare the people of Nineveh. And that's the last thing that Jonah wanted. 
So therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. And the Lord said, Do you do well to be angry? Jonah went out of the city and sat to the east of the city and made a booth for himself there. He sat under it in the shade till he should see what would become of the city. Now the Lord God appointed a plant and made it to come up over Jonah that it might be a shade over his head to save him from his discomfort. So Jonah was exceedingly glad because of the plant. But when dawn came up the next day, God appointed a worm that attacked the plant so that it withered. When the sun rose, God appointed a scorching east wind, and the sun beat down on the head of Jonah so that he was faint. And he asked that he might die and not live. But God said to Jonah, you do well to be angry for the plant. Do, do you do well to be angry for the plant? And he said, yes, I do well to be angry, angry enough to die. And the Lord said, you pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came into being in a night and perished in a night. And should I not pity Nineveh, that great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left and also much cattle? This is how the story ends. And it's pretty amazing. It ends with this bizarre statement from God about cattle. And you have to sit there and go, okay, why are we ending on cattle? We have all these questions. What happens to Jonah? What happens to the people of Nineveh? What happens to Israel? And yet all we're told is God spares Nineveh and also much cattle. He has pity on the Ninevites. Now we've said before, he, they don't deserve his pity. They don't deserve his compassion. But why in the world does he end with a statement about cattle? See, I, I just sit there and I go, this, is, this has got to be some kind of a joke. What's he doing here? It's like the worst ending ever to a book in the Bible that I can think of. Because there, again, there's so many unanswered questions and you want to scream at God and say, you know, forget about the cattle. Tell me what happens to Jonah. Does, does he stay a prophet? Does he go prophesy somewhere else? Does he go back into Nineveh? What happens to him? What happens to the Ninevites? Was their salvation real and lasting? But no, we end with this statement about cattle. Why? Why are the cattle mentioned? Well, in this story, we saw it in chapter 3, that even the cows seem to be repentant. That they, they are clothed with ashes and they are, they're forced to fast. That's exactly what the king decreed in chapter 3. They're, they're clothed with sackcloth. Even the cows. See, this tells us something about the sincerity and, and the severity of the repentance that these Ninevites are trying to display to this God of the Israelites, Yahweh. They want to be spared. And so they're even making their cattle go through the process of repentance, wearing sackcloth, not eating, not drinking water, fasting. And so we know that it says that let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Let them not feed or drink water. Let not man and beast be covered with sack, or let them be covered with sackcloth. The king decreed that the beasts were to participate in this act of repentance in order that they may not be destroyed. He goes on and says, let them call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that's in his hands. Who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger. Maybe he will spare us. 
if we all collectively participate in this process, even the cattle. But again, why is this significant? Why is it important? And why do we end this story on a reference to cattle? The, the word here is beheme, behema, and it, it, it can refer to cattle, it can refer to the beasts of the field. It's usually used of domesticated animals. But there's something going on here that the author's trying to get us to understand. And again, because this was written for a Hebrew audience, and most likely a Hebrew audience living in exile in Assyria, and this story is read to them, this reference to cattle struck a chord. And it struck a nerve. Like everything else the author has said, it was intended to make a point to these disobedient, unrepentant Israelites living in captivity in Assyria. And that's the reason he ends this way. It's, it's a very not-so-subtle comparison between, once again, the Ninevites and the Israelites. Mitchell spent some time on this last week. And this is another aspect of that not-so-pretty comparison between one group of people, Gentiles, who have repented, and Israelites, who are unrepentant. And because they're unrepentant, they're in captivity. See, the Assyrians... Even their cattle showed signs of repentance, but the Israelites never did. Even the cows put on sackcloth and ashes. And it reminds me of an ad campaign that was back in the 60s for car carnation milk. Our milk comes from contented cows. Well, these were repentant cows. These were cows. No, they didn't know what they were doing and they weren't turning to Yahweh. They were just had ashes poured on them and they were deprived of fodder and water but they looked more repentant than any Israelite ever had. They, they, they remained unrepentant, even in their captivity. So what's going on? What's the author trying to say? What's the main point he's trying to get across to the Israelites who are reading the story? He's jabbing them in the side. He's poking them in the eye. He's trying to get them to understand, you remain unrepentant. You remain stubborn. You remain hard-hearted and hard-headed, and you refuse to come to the one who would spare you, like he's done the Ninevites. Now, we know in Hosea, who's a contemporary of Jonah, another prophet, he says this about the people of Israel. Now, look at his words. Like a stubborn heifer or cow, Israel is stubborn. Can the Lord now feed them like a lamb in a broad pasture? Is God going to take care of these unrepentant, hard-hearted Israelites? No, He's not. He's going to punish them for their sin. We see also in Hosea 10, 11, Israel is like a trained heifer. They've been trained. They've been used by God. They've been given the law of God. And they're treading out grain, an easy job she loves. Now, what this is talking about is when you trained a, a heifer, a cow to to tread in, in, in um, a grain field, he would pull a stone that would tread the grain and crush the hulls. And while he did that, he was allowed to eat. It was a process he enjoyed. He got a benefit from his labor. But he goes on and says, but now things are going to change. I'm going to take Israel from that environment where they were in the yoke, where they were working along with God, where they were treading the grain and enjoying the bounty of it. Now they're going to put, be put in another yoke, a heavy yoke, the yoke of captivity, and they're going to end up in Assyria. But look at all the references to cows and heifers. There's another one in Amos, another contemporary of Jonah. And listen to this one. He's talking to the women of Samaria. 
He says, listen to me, you fat cows living in Samaria. I've never heard this passage preached in a church, and you can imagine why. Uh, it, it's talking about these women who are living in opulence, who are living in fine homes and have servants meeting their every whim and meeting their beck and call. And it says, listen to me, you fat cows living in Samaria, you women who oppress the poor and crush the needy and who are always calling to your husbands, bring us another drink. Living in opulence, living in, in this attitude of we deserve this. But he calls them fat cows, overfed, unexercised. All these references to cows and heifers are meant to be an offense. And now the Ninevite cows have repented, but again, the Israelites have not. So you can see why this would be a slap in the face to any Israelite, especially those living in captivity, because they remain totally unrepentant. Their hearts are not yet broken. Yet the cows of Nineveh even look more spiritual than the Israelites. They went without food and water. They fasted. They mourned, so to speak, with the people. Remember, the king decreed that everybody in the community, everybody within the walls of Nineveh was going to put on sackcloth and ashes, and even the domesticated animals were going to participate in this process. So even the cows looked more repentant, but not Israel. They're in captivity. They're unbroken. They're unbowed. They're still stubborn, and they refuse to turn back to God. And Jonah is in the same state. He's still unbroken and unbowed. He's still angry, as we saw in that opening verse of chapter 1. It says, he's displeased. He's displeased and he's angry. But what's going on here? The word for displeasure is that, that word ra for evil, but it has an extension to it. It's, it's evil with bad intent. See, he's displeased. He's, he's angry because he believes that there's nothing good that's going to come of this. He thinks everything has gone wrong. It literally means it displeased Jonah with great displeasure. He is just totally incensed that this would happen. And he's designated this as evil. Evil and totally good for nothing. This repentance of the Ninevites in his mind was totally worthless. And the actions of God he is deeming as evil. Now think about that. Think about the danger of that kind of a statement. He's basically declaring that God Almighty, the sovereign God of the universe, has made a huge mistake by redeeming, restoring, by saving the people of Nineveh. He doesn't like this plan. He doesn't like what God has done, and he calls it evil. Now that's a, a, a very dangerous thing for any of us to do, to, to look at anything that God does in our lives and deem it as evil or a mistake, or God, you don't know what you're doing. But that's exactly what he's doing. And it reminds me of an encounter that Jesus had with Peter, the apostle Peter, the fast-talking, put-your-foot-in-your-mouth Peter, who was always saying things that he lived to regret. And in this particular occasion, recorded in the Gospel of Matthew, Jesus is beginning to tell his disciples about all the things that are going to happen to him. Listen to what he says. From then on, Jesus began to tell his disciples plainly that it was necessary for him to go to Jerusalem and that he would suffer many terrible things at the hands of the elders, the leading priests, and the teachers of religious law. He would be killed. But on the third day, he would be raised from the dead. He's beginning to tell his disciples all that's going to happen when he goes to Jerusalem. Okay, 
And it says clearly, he's making it very plain. I'm going to be killed. What happens? But Peter, impulsive Peter, takes Jesus aside and begins to reprimand him for saying such things. Here's what he says. Heaven forbid. God forbid, Lord. This will never happen to you. What's he saying? I don't like your plan. I don't like God's plan. Heaven forbid. God disallow this. It isn't going to happen. I'm going to make sure it doesn't happen. He's standing in the way of the divine redemptive plan that God the Father, God the Son, and the Holy Spirit put together long before the foundation of the world. No, it isn't going to happen. You see the similarities? And Jesus turns to Peter and says, Get away from me, Satan. Now that had to hurt, right? For the Lord, the Savior, the Messiah to turn to Peter and say, Basically, you're Satan. You're in league with Satan. You're a dangerous trap to me, he says. You're seeing things merely from a human point of view. See, this gets back to that phenomenological language that Peter was hearing and seeing things and he didn't like what he heard and so he deemed it a mistake. He deemed it evil, just like Jonah did. But they were both wrong. See, he wasn't seeing things from God's point of view and neither was Jonah. Jonah couldn't get it through his thick head that this was God's intent all along. The redemption of, the salvation of the people of Nineveh was what God had intended and the, the whole reason he called him to go there to begin with. Not to destroy them. They deserved to be destroyed, but God had plans to bring them to repentance so that he could save them. See, this whole story is just like the book, the Bible. It's a story of God's redemptive plan, His plan for humanity, both Jews and Gentiles, men and women, rich and poor. But Jonah couldn't understand it, and so he gets angry. And the word here is really interesting. It's kara in the Hebrew. He, he's literally burning up with rage. He, he is so angry he can't stand it. And you're, and you're going to see he takes action. But who's he angry with? This is really important. He's angry at Yahweh. He's angry at God because he's displeased with God's plan. I don't like your plan. I don't like what you've done here. I don't like what I'm seeing. And he lets God know. See, he's angry at God. But if anyone had a right to be angry, it's God. He, he has a right to be angry with the Ninevites, but he chose not to be. He has a right to be angry with Jonah. And if I had been God in that circumstance, I would have snuffed Jonah out in a heartbeat. I would have said, I've had enough of you. I put up with you running away. I saved you from drowning. I, I sent the fish to rescue you. I've sent you again. I gave you a second opportunity. And now you're questioning my integrity and you're questioning my wisdom. God, I don't have to put up with this. But he did. Amazingly, God did. See, if anybody deserved the anger... Any kind of anger, it was Jonah, the anger of God. He deserved to be punished. He deserved to die for the way he was talking to God. And as far as anyone who had a right to be angry, Jonah was last on the list. This guy had no right to be angry with the Ninevites. He had no right to be angry with God. He had no right to be angry about anything because he had been used by God to accomplish an amazing miracle. But he decided that that miracle was actually a mistake. God had made a mistake. So Jonah's angry. And this reminds me of so many passages of Scripture that 
tell us that we really don't have any right as human beings to question the will of God and the ways of God. I love what Job says in Job 41, or God says to Job, do you still want to argue with the Almighty? Do you still want to kind of put up your defenses and you want to debate with me? God says, you are God's critic, but do you have the answers? And then God goes on to say, where were you when I put the stars in the sky? Where were, you, uh, where were you when I created the earth? Where were you when I did all these incredible things? And yet you want to question me, Job? See, we have no right to question God. We may not like the ways of God. We may not understand the ways of God, but we have no right to question the integrity of God, the honor of God, the holiness of God. Isaiah says this, what sorrow awaits those who argue with their creator. Does a clay pot argue with its maker? Does the clay dispute with the one who shapes it saying, stop, you're doing it wrong? Does the pot exclaim, how clumsy can you be? You know, we read this and we go, that's ludicrous. A pot, a pot would never do that. A pot can't do that. But the, the picture is how we do it all the time. I don't like this circumstance. I don't like my job. I don't like this this relationship that I'm in. I don't like the way my life is going. I don't like, and you fill in the blank. What we're doing is we're saying, God, you don't know what you're doing. God, you're an idiot. God, you're a fool. God, you have made a huge mistake with my life. And we have no right to do that. Paul says in Romans, who are you, a mere human being, to argue with God? Should the thing that was created say to the one who created it, why have you made me like this? When a potter makes jars out of clay, doesn't he have a right to use the same lump of clay to make one jar for decoration and another to throw garbage into? See, Jonah can't get it through his head that God made the Ninevites. Just like he made the Israelites. God takes one lump of clay and he, and he makes humanity. He makes Adam. He makes Eve. And then he makes humanity out of Adam and Eve. And, and, and he can deem them for whatever use he wants to. And he has deemed the Ninevites for salvation. But Jonah can't get his head around that. He most certainly can't get his heart around that. And he begins to argue with God. And he's so angry that he basically wants to die. This amazes me. That this prophet of God would get so angry at God that he would de just desire to die. But here's what the reality is. When I read this passage, what jumps out at me is that he really doesn't want to die. Now, we see it and we hear him say it and we go, gosh, you know, this guy has a death wish. I think what he's doing is he's basically bargaining with God. He's attempting to blackmail God. Because again, he's a Jew, chosen one of the chosen people of God, and he's a prophet of God. He's been handpicked by God, and he thinks he has value to God as his chosen person and as his prophet, and so he been, begins to blackmail God with his life. I, I'd rather die than watch this happen. I would rather die than the Ninevites fully complete this process of repentance. He's basically saying, choose me or the Ninevites. It's me or the Ninevites. Again, what an audacious, what a bold thing to say to God. Hey, it's either me or them. You choose. See, God's already chosen. He's chosen Jonah. He's born into the family of Israel. He's chosen him to be a prophet. He's just now chosen also the Ninevites, and that's what Jonah can't stand. But Jonah's starting to play games with God. He's, he's using his life as ammunition Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it's better for me to die than to live. Do you see what he's doing here? He's telling God what to do. He's telling God what would be better. I would be better off dead than to watch this happen. 
for your plan to come to fulfillment. Either stop your plan or kill me. He's in essence telling God, repent of this sin you're about to commit. The sin of sparing the Ninevites. And I think really he wants God to renege on his offer of showing compassion. I know what you're doing. I know what you're getting ready to do, but don't do it. Otherwise, if you're going to do it, kill me. Kill me. God had every right to kill Jonah. Amazingly, he didn't. He not only showed compassion to the Ninevites, he shows compassion to Jonah. He doesn't take his life. In fact, God says, do you do well to be angry? Is this the right thing to do? That's basically what he's saying. Is your anger well placed? Do you have a right to be angry? Is it pleasing to me for you to be angry about this? Are you justified in your anger? Is what you're doing right? And we know the answer to all those questions, right? It's no. His anger is not justified. He's not right. His anger is not well-placed. He has no right to be angry at the Ninevites and most certainly not at God. His anger is not well-placed. But see, Jonah doesn't even answer the question. What we see is he walks away. He just leaves the premises. He walks out the city gates and he sits down. He has a pity party. It says, Jonah went out of the city, sat to the east of the city, and made a booth for himself there. He makes a booth. He makes a temporary shelter in which to, to live. Well, why? Because he's waiting it out. It says he sat under its shade till he should see what be would become of the city. Do you see what's going on here? He's seen the repentance of these people. He's seen them put on sackcloth and ashes. Not 40 days has gone by yet. He's still waiting for destruction He's still hoping God will renege and change his mind. So he builds a little booth so he can sit and watch to see what's going to happen. What's he hoping will happen? Their destruction. He's still got the same thing in mind. He still thinks he has time to change God's mind the other way. To get him to do what he wants done because the 40 days is not yet up. Remember God said, yet 40 days and Nineveh will be destroyed, overthrown. That's what Jonah heard, that's still what he hoped for. So Jonah sets up a little watch station. He makes a little booth to protect him from the sun so he can watch and wait. And remember, he's outside the city gates because he's expecting God's judgment to fall on the city. And he doesn't want to be in there when it happens. He's got a ringside seat to what he hopes will be the destruction of the Ninevites. He's hoping God will re relent of his mercy. That's amazing to me. Relent of your compassion. Don't show him compassion. Kill him. And his hope of God destroying the Ninevites is alive and well. This guy is totally unchanged from the beginning of the book to the end of the book. No remorse, no repentance. He never shows compassion. He never gets in line with God in any way. And yet he's a prophet of God. So what happens? I love how God intervenes in this situation. He, he basically, he appoints a plant and he makes it come up over Jonah. He, he ordains a plant and it seems to have grown up overnight and it provided shade for Jonah. Ev evidently, his little booth didn't provide enough shade from the, the sun. So God helps him out. God miraculously creates this plant. He appoints the plant and it saves Jonah. I love the terminology here. God ordains and it saves and Jonah's glad. 
in just this, this one verse, you have a picture of God's redemptive plan. He appoints. He appoints a Savior who saves us from our sins, and we are glad. We rejoice in that. We see this happening in Jonah. God is doing something for Jonah that Jonah did not deserve. Remember, he's been angry with God. He disagrees with God. He's questioned the integrity of God. He's now sitting outside the city hoping that God will renege and repent of his designs of showing compassion on the Ninevites. And yet God spares him and God saves him. See, Jonah creates a booth, right? He creates a booth to wait out Nineveh's destruction, but God creates a plant overnight. It, it's some kind of a gourd plant, and, it, and it, grow, it grew overnight, miraculously, and it created shade. He shelters Jonah from the scorching sun. He's sheltering Jonah from what? Destruction, death. He wants to die, but God's sparing him from death. And he experienced discomfort until that... Gourd grew until the plant grew. He was experiencing discomfort, but God provides shade, pain, relief. He enjoys that relief. He's glad, we're told. He's grateful that God gave the plant. He doesn't give God the credit, but he's glad that the plant's there. Then God creates a worm. He appoints a worm. Same thing. He ordains a worm to do what? To eat the plant, destroy the plant. And it seems that it happened very quickly. So he goes from shade to scorching sun. He loses his shelter. He loses that salvation that he was so glad about. And then God appoints. He sends a scorching wind, a Shiraka wind, a, a, just a heat blast wind. He has no shade, scorching sun, and he sends wind, the wind, and he grows faint. He loses his will to live. Now he really wants to die. What's God doing? God's once again graciously trying to get this guy's attention. He's behind all of it because we see he ordains the plant, he ordains the worm, and he ordains the wind. God is doing all of this to Jonah to try to get Jonah's attention. But Jonah remains unrepentant. See, the sun rose. The sun rose. There's some phenomenological language right there. The sun rose. God appoints the wind. The sun beats down. And he suffers. Now there's something going on here that we need to understand. Those, those terms, the sun and the wind, all have to do with judgment. They're, they're pictures of God's judgment. When, whenever the scriptures talk about the scorching sun or the east wind, they're referring to God bringing judgment. So he's bringing judgment upon this guy, Jonah, because he's disobedient, because he's out of step with God, because he refuses to accept the will of God. Look at Ezekiel 19, 12. The vine, Israel, was uprooted in fury and thrown down to the ground. The desert wind dried up its fruit and tore off its strong branches so that it withered and was destroyed by fire. See, the wind is always a picture of God's judgment. We see this in Hosea, again, a contemporary of Jonah. Though he may flourish among his brothers, speaking of Israel, the east wind, the wind of the Lord shall come, rising from the wilderness, and his fountain shall dry up. His spring shall be parched. We see this as a picture of God's judgment on Jonah for his disobedience. And Jonah is a picture of Israel. This, is, this has been the case since we started seven weeks ago. God is using Jonah 
as a picture of the unrepentant and rebellious Israelites. See, God was ex- or Jonah was experiencing the judgment of God. He already had. He experienced the judgment of God in that storm and being thrown into the ocean of sinking down to the roots of the mountains, but then being redeemed by that fish. And now he's going through it again. He had received God's mercy. See, he's a picture of what God wants to do and can do for the Israelites if they'll just repent. And we know that one day that will happen. God will redeem and restore the people of Israel. I love this from Isaiah 49.10. They, Israel, will neither hunger nor thirst. The searing sun will not reach them anymore. For the Lord in His mercy will lead them. He will lead them beside cool water. See, there's a day coming when, when God will restore the rebellious, unrepentant people of Israel. But that lies far into the distant future. God will care for His sheep. God will redeem them and restore them. But here we have this picture of the repentant Ninevites and the unrepentant Jonah. Because what, what do we see? What's his response in all of this? He still says, it's better for me to die than to live. I'd rather die. And God asks that same question again. Do you do well to be angry? Do you, are you right in this? But he adds this little ending with the plant, for the plant. Do you do well to be angry for the plant? See, now you're angry about something different. Earlier it was because I'm sparing the Ninevites. Now you're angry about this plant. See, God is giving him a visual demonstration, a lesson, and he's using the plant to do it. And I love how Jonah responds. He goes, yeah, I have every right to be angry. No, he doesn't. He doesn't get it. He doesn't understand. See, he's focused and fixated on the plant. Why? Because the plant had provided him with something he desperately needed, shade, comfort. And he's misplacing his anger. He's now taking his focus off the Ninevites and he's focused on this plant. And he doesn't understand that God's trying to show him something. He's making a comparison about the Ninevites and this plant. See, he's angry with God now because he's he's refused to spare the plant. He wants the plant to still be there. He seems to understand that God destroyed this plant. It came up overnight and it was destroyed within seconds, it seems, in the text. And he's angry about that. Why? Because it's personal. He's been impacted by it. I needed shade. You gave me shade. And then you took away the shade. You killed my plant. Why'd you kill my plant? Why did you bring me discomfort? And see, he sees that as something that is inappropriate. Again, it's wrong. It can't be God's will. Why did you kill my plant? Why did you do this to me? And it reveals so much about this man's heart. We go back to chapter 1, verse 9. Remember when the sailors asked him, Who are you? And he says, I'm a Hebrew. I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. I worship this almighty God who created everything. Now he's mad at God who created the plant and then took the plant, who created the shade and took away the shade, who provided comfort and took away the comfort. See, he doesn't like the way God works. Once again, he's questioning the ways of God, and he wants God to fix his priorities. He wants God to destroy the Ninevites and bring back my plant, save my plant. You see how twisted off this is? Do you see how wrong he is in his understanding of God's ways? 
and he's so self-consumed, it's all about a stupid plant and his discomfort when really what he wants is the extreme and final discomfort for tens of thousands of Ninevites. He wants them literally wiped off the face of the earth like Sodom and Gomorrah, and he could care less. All he cares about is that you took my plant, you took my shade, you took my comfort, and you're wrong. Why did you do that? And we end with this. God says, you pity the plant. You feel sorry for the plant, but you really just feel sorry for you because in taking the plant, you lost your comfort. You, you lost your joy, your gladness. You pity the plant for which you did not labor. You didn't make it grow, God says. It came into being in a night and it perished in a night. It came up miraculously. It was taken away miraculously. You had nothing to do with it. And yet you pity it. You didn't plant it. You didn't water it. You, but you pity it. You show compassion. You show mercy. And God says, should I not pity Nineveh, who I created? I created every person in that city. They belong to me. Nineveh belongs to me. Should I not pity them? See, God is trying to make this incredible statement to Jonah. He says, you pity the plant. Should I not pity Nineveh, that great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left? See, we, we started fixating on this and also much cattle, which is just a way of God comparing the, the repentant cattle to the unrepentant Israelites. But the real focus of this last verse of this entire book is this, who do not know their right hand from their left. This is a statement of God about the spiritual state of the people in Nineveh. And it's so significant. And Jonah doesn't understand it. See, he's once again making a comparison. Here's what we know about the Israelites. The Israelites had been set apart by God, chosen by God. They had been made special in his eyes, and yet the Ninevites had no relationship with God whatsoever until Jonah walked into town. And they heard about the judgment of this Jewish God named Yahweh. Do you see the difference? The Jews were governed by God's law. He had graciously given them His law to live by, to govern their relationship with Him vertically and their relationship with one another horizontally. But the poor Ninevites were governed by their sin natures. They didn't know but to do what they did. And we shouldn't condemn them. They are already condemned. They're living out all they know to do because they have sin natures and no other kind of nature. We know this, that the Israelites could receive atonement through the sacrificial system. They could get forgiveness of sins. They sinned just as much. They could be just as egregious in their sin, but they could receive atonement. What about the Ninevites? They were living in a state of total ignorance about any of those things, worshiping false gods who could do nothing for them, and they stood condemned before God Almighty. And God says, should I not pity these people? You guys have had everything handed to you on a, on a silver platter. I've given you my law. I've given you my sacrificial system. I gave you the tabernacle. I gave you the temple. I have given you my presence. And you, you remain totally unrepentant. These people had nothing. And in one day, they hear the message from the prophet of God and they repent. They repent. 
Well, I'll close with this. In Ephesians chapter 2, it says this. Paul is writing to these believers in Ephesus. He says, once you were dead because of your disobedience and your many sins, you used to live in sin just like the rest of the world, obeying the devil, the commander of the powers in the unseen world. He is the spirit at work in the hearts of those who refuse to obey God. All of us used to live that way, following the passionate desires and inclinations of our sinful nature. By our very nature, we were subject to God's anger, just like everyone else. But something happened. God sent a Savior. God sent someone to die for us, someone to go to the cross on our behalf, to provide for us the salvation we couldn't provide for ourselves, to give us righteousness that was not of our own making, so that we could be made right with God. And we have no right to be angry at God about the salvation of anyone else. We have no right to question the ways of God like Jonah did because God's ways are just and right and pure all the time. So here's your questions to end this study on. First one, why do you think God chose to end this book as a cliffhanger with no real resolution? We don't know what happens to Jonah. We don't really know what happens to the Ninevites. Why did God choose to end it that way but it sits smack dab in the middle of the entire Bible? I want you to read Ephesians 2, verses 4 through 9. What does this story of Jonah have in common with these verses? And why is its message relevant for today? Finally, there are still Ninevites living in spiritual darkness. They're all around us. According to Ephesians 5, 8 through 10, what's the best way for us to show them the light, the hope that we found? Well, Father, thank you for this study. Thank you for the men who've participated week in, week out over the last seven weeks. And I pray that you would keep this message of the book of Jonah alive in our hearts and lives as we move forward into the rest of the summer and into the fall. Lord, we want to be men who step alongside you and not question you, but walk with you as you unfold your grand redemptive plan that includes people of every nation, tribe, and tongue. May we be willful excited, eager participants in that plan. And I pray all of this in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. You guys have a great rest of the summer and we'll see you in the fall.